Hello, hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. Hope everyone is doing well and staying healthy and fit out there. Um, so there's lots of stuff in the news about what is and isn't linked to COVID-19, right? There's a lot of chatter about long covid and then recently, there was a bunch of headlines about COVID being linked to an uptick of type 1 diabetes in kids. Uh, some of the headlines can, of course, make both parents and kids nervous. But is there really a link? And do people need to worry about it? To help us make sense of this, Dr. Lars Stena is on the podcast today. He is a senior researcher at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, and he studies risk factors for type 1 diabetes. That is his area of expertise. So he is going to tell us more about type 1 diabetes for folks who may not know a lot about it um, and the risk factors. And he's going to talk about the rate of new cases of type 1 diabetes. Are they going up? And if and if not, uh, can anybody say it is linked to COVID-19? Or... Is it linked to something else? Okay, so we're going to chat about this. Uh, again, it was in the headlines recently, so timely topic here. Okay, so give me a second here, guys, while we connect to Dr. Lars Stena. All right, everyone, we are connecting with Dr. Lars Stena, and uh, we're going to talk about an exciting topic that's been in the news uh, type 1 diabetes? Is it increasing? Is it related to COVID-19? But first, before we jump in, Lars, thank you so much for joining. Um, and I thought maybe we could start out if you could tell us more about yourself and what you do at the Oslo Diabetes Research Center. Yes, hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, as you said, my name is Lars Stenner, and uh, I work with research on type 1 diabetes. I am affiliated with the Oslo Diabetes Research Center, but my primary um, job is at the Norwegian Institute for Public Health. It's in Oslo and it's a governmental institution where we do research uh, and also give advice to governmental institutions. So the, the Oslo Diabetes Research Center is sort of an more, more or less a, a virtual center where it's as, as a hub for people working with research and clinicians uh, working with diabetes from different angles, different specialties from pediatrics to endocrinology, nephrology, and so on. Uh, and my primary expertise and, and, and uh, interest is the causes and risk factors of type 1 diabetes. I've been working with that since I started my PhD in 1998. So how, uh, type 1 diabetes, how did you become interested in that? Were you always interested in it? Uh, no, that's, no, that's a long story and, okay. and random events, I guess, led up to this. Uh, actually, I, I studied nutritional physiology and I was originally in, interested in, in uh, malnutrition and wanted to work in Africa and as a student. And I went to do my master's degree uh, project there in, in Zimbabwe. And uh, the planned project was canceled for, for you know various reasons. And then I was uh, offered this possibility to work on a completely different project, but still in Zimbabwe. And it was about urbanization and diabetes. And I said, okay, let's do this. And I found diabetes fascinating. But then I learned, quickly learned that we 
So this was primarily type 2 diabetes, which occurs mostly in adults and is related to lifestyle. And I quickly learned that we know a lot already about the causes of type 1, type 2 diabetes. And the researcher in me wanted to, you know, if I wanted to continue to do research, I wanted to study something where we don't know so much. So that's, I learned that type 1 diabetes is, you know, it really on a, it's not really unexplored because people have been doing research for a long time, but we don't really know a lot. So that's what fascinated me. So when I was offered the possibility to do a PhD in a project on risk factors for type 1 diabetes, I, I jumped on that and started in 1998 with very little background knowledge. Uh, so I had to learn a lot of new things, but uh, I've you know, stayed on this topic ever since. Fascinating. I love uh, hearing about how people, if, you know, discover their research interest um, or their occupational interest even. So diabetes, we use that word. A lot of people use that word as kind of an umbrella term. And then underneath that, we have type one and type two. So let's just to set the stage and start with the basics. Can you just tell us what is the difference between type one and type two for folks who may not know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... So it's very, two very different diseases. The co common theme is the high blood sugar. So that comes, that's common for both for all kinds of diabetes. There are also other types like rare genetic forms and so on. But the, the main forms are these two that you mentioned. The type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. It occurs, it can occur at any age, but it often uh, starts in childhood. And it requires insulin treatments. Whereas type 2 diabetes is more related to lifestyle. Uh, it often occurs in older people. And uh, you don't necessarily need insulin treatment, but you can use lifestyle interventions or uh, oral medication of different types. There are several new medications coming on the market now for type 2 diabetes, but insulin is the mainstay of treatment for type 1 diabetes. Both diseases are influenced by a combination of genes or environment, uh, genetic factors and environment. But we know a lot of the environmental and lifestyle factors influencing the risk of type 2, whereas for type 1, we know a lot of the genetics, but we know comparatively much less about environmental risk factors that influence the risk. So I guess that's uh, the main things. Uh, of course, a lot of more detail like we sure, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just the just the, the general scope, just so folks know yeah. going forward when uh in the conversation. So you mentioned the genetics as a risk factor. Uh and before we dive into this potential link to between COVID-19 and type 1 diabetes in kids, from your work and the research you do, can you tell us more about some of the risk factors for type 1? Um, what have we learned? Yeah. So as I said, uh, we know quite a lot about the genetic factors already. So we can start with that. So there are some uh, very common genes or lab variants. It's not, and it's not mutations or anything. So people are different in the, uh, have different variants of genes called HLA. It's short for human leukocyte antigen. Uh, it's uh, genes that encode for proteins involved in immune response. And they are involved in uh, almost or yeah, essentially all autoimmune diseases, uh, including type 1 diabetes. And there are a combination of variants here that predisposes 
you to a high risk or a low risk of or different degrees of risk for type 1 diabetes. So these seem to be to have a susceptible susceptibility variant in the HLA uh, among the HLA genes. There are several genes, a combination of genes here. This seems to be more or less necessary for you to develop uh, type 1 diabetes, but it's not it's not at all sufficient. So if you have those predisposing genes, it doesn't mean that you will get a disease, just that you have an increased risk. And similarly for family history, so if you have an affected first degree relative, you have a tenfold increased risk uh, of getting the disease, but still the absolute risk is less than less than 10%. So it means that it's not necessary, you don't necessarily get a disease, even if you have the disease in your family. And also in the population among all new onset cases, only a minority have the disease in the family. So I think around 10, 15% of all new cases in childhood have uh, an affected family member. So that means that most cases are happening without, you know, a uh, family history or clear genetic sort of family history. Although we know that the combination of the of very common genetic variants that you inherit from your parents will influence the risk. So there are also other uh, other genes that have comparatively comparatively smaller effect on your risk, but a combination of maybe 50, 60, up to 100 different genes that have a small influence by itself, but the combination can influence the, the probability that you get the disease sometime in your life. Uh, when I said that uh, the disease is influenced by both genes and environment, how can I say that when we don't know about the environmental factors? And the reason is that we have seen a steady increase in the incidence, the number of new cases per year, in many different countries over the past few decades. And we cannot attribute that to genetics because the genetic composition of the population doesn't change in a few generations, right? So, so it has to be something in, a, in the environment, some non-genetic factors. So these are, so we know that there must be some needles in the haystack out there. And that's why I keep on searching and doing this research, even though we haven't been very successful in identifying specific uh, environmental factors that we know that influence the risk. There are a few or quite many um, suspects and the strongest suspects are nutritional factors and infections. So for example, a group of uh, gastrointestinal uh, viruses called enteroviruses have been suspected as risk factors for many, many years. I think the hypothesis was what it, this idea came up around 50 years ago already. And, uh, there's still a lot of research being done on the field, and it's not conclusive yet. It's really, really complex, and we, you know, keep slowly getting um, more and more knowledge regarding the complex potential relationship. But it's not really well established yet. So yeah, I guess that's uh, and for nutritional factors, it's nothing like most people think intuitively. Like when I pe speak to people on the street and friends, they. They ask, oh, sugar must be, you know, the reason. If you eat too much sugar or sweets in childhood, then you get type 1 diabetes. But it's not, it does not seem to be the case. Um, uh, at least in most people, it will not affect your risk at all. So we're looking at different things probably early in life because the, the disease, it's also quite complex, this uh, natural history of the disease where the, the we know that the disease process goes on for many, many months and usually many years before you develop 
the classical symptoms and get diagnosed. So uh, a lot of the people who get type 1 diabetes, even when they're 10 or 20, they have had an ongoing disease process already since they were maybe two or three or five years old. So that's why we are looking for risk factors really early in life. And then it can be very complex because, you know, you have to start looking in childhood, but you have to wait a long time before they develop the disease. So it's hard to study. So it's hard to, it takes time, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of years. So just to reiterate for the listeners, there's suspects out there, but we still don't know what causes type 1 diabetes. Exactly. Everybody likes answers, but we don't. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's hard to say. Yeah. It's hard. But, we don't know. Okay. Uh, yeah. We can okay. come back to a little bit more details later, but uh, yes, that's the basic take home. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So you mentioned infections. And so there was a recent study that was in the news, uh, a study of more than 38,000 kids published in JAMA Network Open, in which the researchers pooled data from 17 previous studies and showed that the rate of new cases of type 1 diabetes in kids and teens under 19 years old increased by 14% in 2020 from 2019. And then in 2021, according to the researchers, the rate increased by 27% from 2019. I think I have those numbers right. Um, yes. Okay. Um, so that seems like a lot. Um, and it you know, I think it, that could frighten parents if you read such a jump. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot, definitely. But uh, it's important, first of all, to to realize that these are relative increase. So when we say so, so many percent increase, it means that relative to the previous year. So it's not, so the absolute risk of getting the disease is not anywhere like 14%. So the increase, the relative increase of 14%, that means 1.14 times as high in 2020 compared to uh, 2019. So, but what is the absolute risk? So the absolute risk, uh, we can it can be expressed in many ways, but I think that the easiest way for most people to comprehend is as a percentage, how many percent of children develop type 1 diabetes before they turn 20, and that's as I said, as we already said, the, it has increased over time and it also differs a lot between different countries. So it's, for example, very low in Japan and China and it's the highest uh, incidence is in, in the Nordic countries, especially in Finland. But uh, in a typical European country or in the US, the absolute uh, risk or probability of de developing type 1 diabetes in the general population is about one half percent or even less than that. So a 14% increase from one year to another, that means that that absolute risk of a half a percent went up to 0.57%. So still far below 1%. So it's not like, uh, you know, prospective parents or parents of young kids suddenly now have to worry for the kids this year rather than last year it's still you know, a tiny proportion of kids who develop this disease. So that's important to realize. But of course, for, the, you know, for us who study the causes, we are really interested in this. And for the healthcare systems, the number of cases who develop the disease every year, of course, every increase, there will be more demand on the, on the healthcare system. And you know, of course, for those who are affected, it's, it's a 
dramatic event for the for the patient and for the families. Um, but it's very hard to say that you know uh, this is because of for a single individual. It, it, you cannot really attribute the disease to one to a single event or to the fact that there was a you know a pandemic going on. So that's uh, that's one way one one way to look at it. So so yeah, another thing maybe we can you wanted to ask about the the, the long term increase that we mentioned already. So so you know uh, if you look in the long term over several decades there has been an, a slowly increase uh, in in most countries that have been studied, and on average there is maybe two to four percent increase per year. So that means. So the, the relative increase, that means that every year you can multiply the previous year by 1.03. Then you get a new number that is slightly higher. So, for example, if you have, as I said, 0.5% uh, risk in one year, then maybe the, the next year you will have 0.51%, something like that, right? So it's still still low, but it's it's an, a big increase in the in the population, in the whole population the number of cases that develops so uh, this single number that came out of this study you mentioned of 14 percent increase in one uh, year it's much much stronger that, than what we have seen previously uh, and the, you, you mentioned all the 21 percent increase that's it like that that corresponds to the two-year increase like from 19 to, uh, 2019 to 2021 that's it 21% was, I think it was, yes. So that's kind of a similar yearly increase as a 14, like 14% from one year to the next. And then if you add another 14%, it's or 27%, I think it was. So so that's to you know to put those into context, it's a much stronger increase than what we have seen before. But also there is probably some some random variation from year to year. If you look at any single country, at least in those countries who have not too big populations, there is a year to year variation that we cannot really explain. So sometimes it goes up and then the year after it goes down, but in the long run it increases. So uh, so the, the two to 4% increase per year that I mentioned, that's a sort of an, an overall average across many years and many different countries. But uh, in you can always find periods in single countries where you have these huge increases, maybe 14%. So there are many instances, if you go back in history and look at uh, the incidence rates, there are many instances where it has increased 14% year, uh, percent from one year to, to another, but then it goes down again often. But in the long run, as I said, it increases. You should have figures to like uh, an illustration. Yeah, you know, easier, audio. Uh, <laughs> to illustrate I, I don't feel well. like dressing up to do a video, but <laughs> <laughs> but no, I agree with you. Images really help. But, you know, I think in general, um, and we've heard those, uh, you know, relative risk versus absolute risk. And yeah. there, you know, you're, you do this for a living, but those are really tough terms. And when people see percentages in news articles or headlines, you know, not, and you say, well, that's the absolute risk, not the real, that doesn't mean anything for like somebody at home, you know, who's like raising yeah. kids and just running out the door to work. Um, but I don't know if there's a way to put this in a, a, like a very simple, simplified way 
folks should worry about more about the absolute risk. Okay. Yes, definitely. It's but it doesn't create the same headlines, right? No, it doesn't create the same headlines, but I just want <laughs> um and like a you know, headline headline mad you know you need to have a creative headline for people to click on it uh, otherwise no one's going to come to your news site there's that issue too and well you know we're all aware of that but i just kind of want uh the listeners to understand that these percentages may not mean what they think they mean or how they're interpreting them at home um yes. okay okay I, I think um that that's an, i think that's an important point to get across because no one's sitting there like oh that's the relative risk or that's the absolute risk or if they are like no one really knows what that means anyways um, so what we're saying here, and, and you just mentioned, just to reiterate, the inc the incidence rate of type 1 diabetes, so that means the new cases uh, that are being diagnosed will vary from year to year, um, yes. but in general, like there's an increase that's happening. Yeah. Okay, but I it's not like something that's like, whoa, everybody, wa you know, watch out, look out for your kid. It's not like at that level yet. Yes, okay. correct. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> My oh, facial right. expression probably <laughs> had to go along with that statement, but um, all right. So let's let's talk about this then. This uh, is there evidence, or is there not enough evidence on whether COVID nineteen infection itself is damaging the pancreas and maybe causing an uptick in type one diabetes cases? Yeah. So um, to answer that question, it's it's really difficult, but uh, the and also, this uh, this is not really my area of like research, so I'm not really the top expert here. But I've read uh, quite a lot of papers on uh, studies using like in vitro studies where you use cells, uh, cell lines, or or human primary cells, beta cells, and see what happens if they put you know a virus into the test tube. And uh, this, of course. Uh, depends a lot on the condition, experimental conditions you have. And uh, there are varying results from different uh, groups. Uh, depending, and and I, I think the summary uh, take home from this is that the results you get really depends on uh, many experimental conditions. And it's not really easy to know, you know what, what is the conditions in, uh, in vivo, in, you know, in a human who is infected in a setting where you have you an immune system fighting the virus, because in a test tube you add the virus uh, to the cell culture in culture, you don't have the immune system, right? So, so it's a sort of a artificial system, but it's of course interesting to see whether the virus can infect the cells, and it seems like it can. So people made a big fuss, I think, because uh, some of the main receptors, the factors that facilitate the entry of the virus into the cells, it's expressed on beta cells, the cells that produce insulin, and that is destroyed in type 1 diabetes. Uh, but it doesn't mean necessarily that uh, people will get type 1 diabetes if they're in, you know, infected. We know now that like the majority of the people on the whole globe has been infected, right? And the small minority have type 1 diabetes still. So it is a rare event, obviously. Uh, and there are different studies in suggesting that uh, viruses can both infect uh, beta cells, obviously, and also influence the function and even kill the beta cells, depending on conditions and how you know how um, how much virus there is and so on. And there are also studies of people who died from severe COVID 
where they could find the virus inside the beta cells, but they can also find the virus inside almost any cell type in the body, right? So because these are, after all, I mean, there were a lot of people who died during the pandemic and still there still is, right? Uh, but those who died of severe uh, respiratory illness are fairly extreme cases. So it's obvious that it's possible for the virus to infect beta cells, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it will lead to type 1 diabetes. That's my take home. Uh, but it's plausible. It's possible that it can, in some instances, uh, increase the risk. So, so we have to keep our minds open. And just to read, beta cells are inside the pancreas. And they're yes. making the insulin just so people, okay, okay. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. So it's, it's a tiny proportion. I mean, it's quite fascinating. It's uh, the total mass of those beta cells in our bodies, maybe a couple of grams, like there's tiny islands, the islets of Langerhans, if some of you have heard of those, are, are, are sort of clusters <laughs> Sounds like of, a destination, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, clusters of these cells that within the pancreas that, that produces insulin. And if you don't have them, you will die basically if you don't get insulin. So, okay, so I think you made a good case there or, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, <laughs> Again, as, as often in research. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> um, but that's good. I think it's important like to get the, I don't, we, people don't know yet and it takes a long time. And that may be the message and people have to get comfortable with that uncertainty. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, people don't like uncertainty, but that often is where we're at. Um, so are there any other pandemic-related factors, maybe not the infection itself inside the pancreas, that could have caused shifts in incidence rates of type 1 diabetes? Yes. Um, so I mentioned uh, before that the, the sort of the usual suspects, the kinds of factors that we have been investigating for many years as potential risk factors. There are other types of infections and also nutritional factors. And one of the nutritional factors are actually obesity, even though obesity is traditionally associated with type two diabetes, lifestyle related and older age type two diabetes. There are also some research uh, showing quite consistently that obesity can influence the risk of type one diabetes. This is to a much, much, you know, smaller degree that the relationship with obesity is much, much weaker. And it's still not well established, but it's several studies have shown at least an association here. So it's it's a potential contributing factor to the risk. And uh, I haven't really seen any very good systematic study of whether obesity increased during the pandemic, but I think most of us have, you know, seen those anecdotal uh you know, research studies and also observations that, you know, during lockdown, some people started exercising, but the majority became less active in daily life. And uh, there are some indications that obesity in childhood increased, but I'm not completely sure that it's, uh, it doesn't really fit the whole picture to explain the whole increase, but it's a potential factor at least that can, you know, be a contributing factor. The other thing that has been discussed a lot and a sort of popular theory is that, for example, enteroviruses that I mentioned before has been suspected as a risk factor. And a lot of other infections were much less common during the pandemic uh, due to lockdown and 
you know, physical distancing and so on, different, you know, measures taken to reduce the impact of the pandemic. So you would think maybe, you know, that would lead to a decrease in uh, in the incidence because people were less infected with those other viruses that can increase the risk. So because after all, at least early in, I mean, in 2020, a small proportion of kids were infected in most countries, not like everyone. Now, I think most, the majority of the population have been infected, but in 20, we, we're talking about this huge increase in 2020. At that time, most uh, studies uh, of populations uh, looking at serology, like how many have had a sign of infection, showed maybe you know, two, three percent of the population were infected by the SARS-CoV, you know, the, the, the coronavirus. It's hard for me to imagine that the direct effect of virus were, should be, you know, seen in the whole population as early as in 2020. And uh, it's also contraintuitive that, you know, if there are other viruses like enteroviruses, they, and they became less common, they should have led to an increase, uh, to a decrease rather than an increase. But then you have the alternative hypothesis called the hygiene hypothesis. So, so the hygiene hypothesis is, is a very popular, we call it, call it a theory because it's, it's a complex theory. It's very, it involves probably many different mechanisms and it's not, I mean, it's popular both, you know, among many scientists and in the, it's, it's easy to convey because people buy this idea very easily, but it turns out to be very difficult to both prove and unprove this, this theory. And it's it's not, I would say it's not well established, but it's a potential explanation of the increase over time, and it could be contributing to an increase of of autoimmune type one diabetes during the pandemic. The fact that people got less of those other common infections, even you know, even infections that are without any symptoms, because you know, contrary contrary to what many people think, we everybody get infections all the time, at least in childhood. So if you mesh, if you look for virus, like we do in some of our studies, we'll find that all, every child has multiple viral infections that don't do much to you. You have mild symptoms and so on. And, and these turn out to be less common. Some of these at least were less common during, during lockdown. For example, the flu was less common and there's also many other respiratory uh, tract infections that were less common during lockdown. And that it could, in theory, have led to an increase or contributed to an increase in type 1 diabetes. So those are two main factors, I think, are potential explanations. But I'm not completely convinced that uh, it explains this huge increase in such a short time. Because, as I said before, the disease process is a long, it usually takes many years, at least many months. So, but it, in theory, those abrupt changes during the pandemic could have influenced maybe those who were on the verge of developing the disease. Maybe they got it a little bit earlier than they would have otherwise done. Uh, that's at least my uh, hunch that that is the more you know plausible scenario that a small subgroup of individuals who were on the way to developing the disease may have been developing or get gotten the diagnosis either a little bit later or earlier and uh, there are also some evidence that the diagnosis was delayed during the pandemic for some individuals who hesitated to you know to seek healthcare as in the early part after after the first lockdown in most countries people were afraid to go to the doctor and then you know even 
if they have the symptoms that can be like symptoms of type 1 diabetes, like thirst, fatigue, weight loss, um, are quite uh, non-specific. They could be due to other factors and, and are often uh, mistaken for, you know, a, a common gut infection or something like that. And that's why um, they, in the meta-analysis or in, in that paper, they, they talked about kids presenting with more severe symptoms as yes. they, yeah, and that's, or yeah, basically, and that's what got them the diagnosis versus the non-specific symptoms that you talked about, just they weren't going to the doctor and then things like yes. hit the fan, so to speak. And then like, that's, you know, you're getting you know, like diabetic ketoacidosis, for example, which is really uh, scary and an emergency. Yes, yeah. that's right. So yeah, there was a we saw in many countries uh, there were a shift in so there's normally a seasonal variation in the number of cases that you know occurs every month it varies during the year in those countries where where there are seasons but um so uh, just after lockdown there was a in many countries there were fewer than expected cases but then in most instances it, it picked up uh, in a few months or weeks after uh, indicating that there were some delayed cases. Not all the countries showed a strong increase in the proportion with severe symptoms or, or ketoacidosis, but on average, uh, a lot of studies have found this. Uh, but here, this is there is also curious time change if you look at historical data, because there has been also an increase in recent years for at least a decade in the proportion of newly diagnosed cases in childhood who have uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. So I asked my clinician colleagues if they can explain it. I, and my impression is that no one can really explain why, but there has been a long-term trend also for this um, with increasing proportion with severe onset. Um, but it was apparently even more severe in the, after lockdown. Um, I can, but that makes sense. Just people, you know, parents weren't taking their kids to the doctors um letting things go during lockdown people were afraid to go to the doctors yes like, that makes sense but yeah. to me i don't understand why was there an increase also in the years leading up to 2019 that's a bit surprising and people don't talk about it because they cannot explain it but if you look at the data from previous years you will see there is an increase not in every country but the many many countries including the u.s you would think that the healthcare system is better and better and people are more and more educated and know about these symptoms and that they should see well, medical care. Maybe in the but US, been, yeah. people are afraid to go to the doctor because they don't want to pay the bills. Like, maybe, I, maybe that's an important factor. That, that <laughs> I mean, I hear that all the time over here. Like, oh, I, yeah. yeah, don't go. It's going to be expensive. Your insurance will only cover so much of it. Yeah. But that obviously there's... Different. We see it also in Norway and okay. in many other okay. countries where there is yeah. free healthcare. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, uh, it's it's hard to explain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm like that over here with the dentist. I'm like, I have a pain in my tooth. I'm gonna wait, like, <laughs> hold yeah. out, to see if it goes away. Um, I, I just I wanted to go back to the hygiene hypothesis for uh, a minute. I, you know, that's associated with a lot of autoimmune diseases and chronic diseases and that kind of thing. Um, I, I, you know, the timing of it, I never actually looked at that, but you know, it's, it's basically, we're maybe hyper clean. We're not exposing ourselves 
to stuff in, uh, in infections and viruses, whatever in childhood. They always talk about kids who grew up on farms and get exposed to everything tend to be healthy or not prone to maybe chronic illnesses, that kind of thing. Can you comment on that? Like, what is the, I guess the time of exposure versus, you know, uh, onset of something that may be linked to this, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, um, I think most of the people working with research in this field believe that it's the early, like early life exposure that really matters most. And it, you know, what your kinds of infections you are exposed to early, it sort of trains your immune system. It contributes to your uh, microbiome in the gut and so on. That is important for many aspects of your health and immunity. So for me, it's a little bit strange that that abrupt change that occurred with, you know, few weeks or days after lockdown should really influence the incidence of type 1 diabetes very quickly. So um, in general, whether the hygiene hypothesis is an important factor in type 1 diabetes, I I cannot speak for all the other diseases, but I I looked at some of the original research data and it's it's very hard to find a very consistent and convincing explanation. It's like in general, it makes sense, but if you try to look at the data hard and specifically for different diseases, it's not so obvious. And specifically for type 1 diabetes, I've been looking at every imaginable uh, indicator of hygiene that I could find in the research literature. And I found very little consistent uh, evidence for an association with risk of type 1 diabetes. So, of course, there, been, there may be factors that are very hard to you know, measure. These things that like asymptomatic infections and so on are, are hard to measure and the whole history of exposure for an individual child from, you know, maybe from, from birth. We try to do that in some of our studies, but it's it, it can, of course, be that we don't measure the, the right things. But for example, growing up on a farm versus not, is not associated with type 1 diabetes, according to the, there are very few studies of type 1 diabetes, but there's nothing clear there. If you own a pet or something like that, has been, you know, some studies suggesting that that influences your risk of, of different allergies and, and maybe asthma but uh, but not type 1 diabetes as far as we can see in the literature yeah it's, i mean it's an interesting hypothesis how do you deal with all this uncertainty you just take it it's frustrating um, <laughs> and it's very frustrating and uh, many colleagues uh, you know take sometimes take for granted that this is true that the hygiene hypothesis is true and you know work you know from that perspective but uh, i think you have to be critical there's so many policies and, and weaknesses in the, those studies that exist. And there are actually quite few studies, not many studies at all, uh, in type 1 diabetes uh, investigating the hygiene hypothesis. And it's it's also very, as I said, it's a complex theory, but there's, there's so many factors, right? So how how do you how do you know what matters? I mean, yeah, I guess parents just always want answers like, well, should I take my kid to the farm more? Should we move to... <laughs> Should I not use this cleaner? Um, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So those, when you read the, you know, those headlines and see those, even read those research papers, you see maybe convincing evidence, but it's normally uh, like a slight increase in the individual risk so that it's very hard to say, you know, for an individual who developed disease that you got it for this reason or not. 
you know, it's always a combination of factors. Yeah. And trying to figure out what everybody is exposed to. I, I think that's like almost, imp- that's really hard. It's really hard. So we, <laughs> that's really hard. We, I am involved in this uh, big project now to, where we try to take this kind of novel perspective called the exposome, where we, the exposome is sort of an analogy of the genome. The genome is all our genes, right? And the exposome is all our exposures, everything you can think of. But of course, it's impossible to really measure, but we you know, trying now to opening up our minds to things that we haven't thought about before to try to measure everything. So we look at, you know, very general things like population density and so on uh, that have been studied in, in previous studies, but, but in isolation. But now we have this information together with number of infections of different types, together with the diet and physical activity, socioeconomic status, in addition to genetics and ethnicity and all that. So we try to assemble as much as we can of different types of data, um, both from those sort of domains of uh, that we talked about already, who that we think you know are plausible candidates like infections and, and nutritional, but also other things like air pollution. It has been barely studied. Um, so we try to take that into, into account uh, where we, you know, Try to integrate all the data, but it's also a very hard undertaking because, as I said, half a percent of kids in the general population develop type 1 diabetes. So if you want to do this prospectively, you have to do it in prospective studies where you start collecting data in childhood and then you see what happens many years later. You need huge, huge, huge uh, number of, of of children and to follow them for a long time so it's it requires a lot of resources and patience <laughs> so we don't have the the, the answer yet but uh, that's one of the projects i'm involved in and that we will exposomes. hopefully see some some novel results from in the future i've actually never heard that word before. exposomes like the exposome, yeah. exposome interesting yeah. wow so this is that was actually my last question you know i wanted to ask you about your current research and what you're excited about working on uh in the realm of type one diabetes, is that it? The exposure? Yeah, it's one of the so so. I try to be to keep my mind open. Uh, I don't have any like pet uh, theory or hypothesis regarding the risk factors. I think we should be skeptical to everything unless you know until we see you know consistent evidence. So I I try to be open to both new ideas that we haven't thought about before, and also be open to the possibility that that some of those. Uh, usual suspects are really important just that there has been you know weaknesses with the design and methodology in previous studies because it's it is really hard it's you know to study infections in type 1 diabetes it's not like you do a study and then you have the answer it is really complex because there's so many aspects of an infection right so one thing we learned during the pandemic you know when i was a student uh, i learned that you know diabetes heart disease those are complex diseases multifactorial diseases, whereas infections are simple. It's just one cause, and if you remove it, you remove the disease, right? But it's not that simple. Infections are also complex diseases, as we've seen for COVID. You know, most people don't get severely affected, whereas others die, others get, you know, a number of different complications. And we cannot really understand why some people get those uh, severe outcomes. And, and it, it may have to do with the history of exposure for relate, to related viruses, 
your genetics and your you know an interaction between all these factors influence probably the outcome of an infection and exactly what to measure to to pinpoint those what you know what how can an infection be involved in a disease like type 1 diabetes that takes many years to develop is it in an early phase where it can it trigger the disease process process or can it uh, perhaps also sort of promote progression of the disease once it's initiated, but maybe not influence anything of the initiation. That's also a possible, uh, possibility that it affects only a subgroup of people who have, you know, for some reason already developed uh, an autoimmune process. So it's very difficult to, to tease out. So, so we have to keep our minds open, even though I, you know, I think the current evidence is not strong enough to to prove that or to say that you know in, infections influences the risk but i think it's very plausible it's possible so we have to continue to refine our studies and and try to test more specific versions of this hypothesis well i think that sounds sensible i think people can uh, you know take that home and digest it um and just you know kind of gain a greater appreciation for uncertainty yeah, lots of <laughs> that would be good. We're, we're not so good at it, but it'd be good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I, uh, I mean, it's interesting. Lots of people are talking about it. I'm sure you you get a lot of emails and you know people are concerned and and that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. um, yeah. It, I mean, it's interesting, and it, it's there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of exposures out there. There's you know I always tell people you can probably you know try to do as much as you can eliminate all these risk factors and you still get hit with something and that's just yeah life yeah. right yeah yeah so some people ask me how i how you know why i still could continue in this you know line of research when i haven't really found anything important but i think the most important impact of what i've done so far is to rule out many factors that you know have been hypothesis we found like often referred to as negative studies but it you know where we can in some cases we can rule out more or less some factors that, uh, so so we can say to parents with you know who have a, a child with diabetes, you did nothing wrong. There's you know you couldn't have done anything to prevent this from from happening. I think that's a, a really important uh, take home. Absolutely, can, uh, I think that's uh, huge, to, hugely uh, important because lots yes. of people when you get something, you're like, was it this? Did I do yeah. something wrong? Yeah, I, I don't think yeah. that's small change at all. Yeah. Um, so if you you know if you if you if you're new to the field and you start reading about infections and type 1 diabetes, you easily come to the conclusion that this is an important factor. And if you had an infection and you got diabetes, you easily conclude that that was the reason, right? Uh, but well, it's not qualifies. that simple. Yeah. It's not that simple. Yeah. No, it's not that simple. Yeah. But like, again, people like to have an answer like, oh, it must have been that, you know, what happened yeah. at such and such a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's more complicated than that. Um, but Lars, thank you so much. This was great. I think this was a great discussion. I really look forward to sharing it thank and you. get folks. Um... It was a pleasure. No problem. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Enjoy Bye. the rest of your day there. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining in. I hope you guys learned something, uh, found a few points to take home, perhaps. You know, I think that bit about relative risk versus absolute risk and how they are portrayed in headlines is a great take-home point. Um, or even just keeping in mind that there could be a lot of uncertainty behind an alarming headline 
uh, and getting comfortable with uncertainty, as uncomfortable as that may sound to some people. That's a mad skill if you can pull it off, right? It makes people really, really uncomfortable not having specific answers. But no answers, or at least unspecific answers, or even half answers, are often the right answers. That's just uh, how the cookie crumbles. <clears throat> Anyways, I hope you consider subscribing, sharing, sending in your thoughts, uh, musings, or all of the above. You can reach me at my blog, bloomingwellness.com, or find me um, in social media land. And now it's time for a quote. This quote is about embracing uncertainty, right? Because might as well stay on theme. Ready? Here it is. And I said, that last thing is what you can't get, Carlo. Nobody can get to that last thing. We keep on living in hopes of catching it once and for all. We keep on living in hopes of catching it once and for all. Uh, and of course, that's from On the Road, which I hope a lot of you guys have read by the one and only Jack Kerouac. Uh, all right. Anyways, uh, I hope you uh, subscribe and all that jazz. I think I said that already, but uh, go out there and have a good day. Yeah, that's it. See you next time. Bye.